Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear a recording of the launch of Dr. Nimat Bijan's new book. The book, entitled Aid Paradoxes in Afghanistan, Building and Undermining the State, explores the complex relationship between aid and state building in Afghanistan. The launch is opened by Professor Mark Evans, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome everyone to the Crawford School and to the Australian National University. Uh, my name is Matthew Dornan. I'm the Deputy Director of the Development Policy Centre, um, which is, is very um, proud to host this event. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and pay our respects to their elders um, past, present and future. Um, I also want to acknowledge the Ambassador of Afghanistan to Australia, um, His um, Excellency um, Mr Wahid Waisi. Um, we're here today, um, of course, for the launch of um, this book, um, Aid Paradoxes in Afghanistan, Building and Undermining the State, uh, by our dear friend and colleague, um, Nimat um, Bizan. Um, I just want to say it's a real pleasure um, to be uh, opening proceedings today. Um, Nimat is a familiar face uh, around the Development Policy Centre. Um, he's stayed with us for months at a time, over a number of years now. Um, throughout that time, he's given us all um, snippets of his work, um, but I, I must admit I've, I've not actually um, read his book yet, so I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Um, and congratulations, Nimat, on its publication. Uh, a little about Nimat, he's a um, research fellow at uh, Oxford University's um, Blavatnik School of Government. Um, he's also Senior Research Associate at the Oxford University's Global Economic Governance Program uh, and a visiting fellow um, at uh, the Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy um, and, of course, at the Development Policy Centre here at ANU. Um, and he has a PhD in Political Science and International Relations from the ANU uh, and previously um, occupied a senior position in the post-2001 government of Afghanistan. Um, Launching uh, Nimat's book today um, will be Mark Evans. Um, so many of you will be familiar with Mark, um, or will know of him at least. Um, he's the Director um, and Professor of Governance at the Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis at the University of Canberra. Um, and he's really an expert in the study and practice of governance and policy analysis. And I understand he's also um, done some work uh, in Afghanistan. Um, so, um, thank you for joining us, joining us Mark, and, and for offering to launch the book. Um, I think that's enough from me, so please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Evans. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people as the traditional owners' land on which we are meeting, um, and acknowledge their unique contribution to our environmental and cultural heritage, past, present and future and I extend our respect to all Indigenous people in attendance here today. Um, look, I'm absolutely delighted to be here to provide a, an introduction to Nimat's um, important new book on aid paradoxes in Afghanistan, um, Building and Undermining the State, uh, which is published by uh, Rutledge, Taylor and Francis. I should give them a bit of a plug because I'm an editor of one of their series. So um, it's great to see that they're, they're publishing books on, on Afghanistan. Ten years ago, you wouldn't have seen a book like this being published. So this is a really important uh, contribution. Um, I'm really delighted to be here really for two reasons. Partly because I think this book's, book is such an important contribution to 
our understanding of post-war reconstruction, not just in Afghanistan, but, but more generally. Uh, but also I've been um, delighted to, to have um, observed at first hand Neemat's um, incredible journey um, from a development practitioner in the Ministry of Finance under Ashraf um, Ghani um, in the Republic of Afghanistan's first post-Taliban government uh, to becoming an intellectually curious PhD student with whom I had lots of um, fascinating lunches and, and dinners discussing the future of Afghanistan. Um, and now to his current position as a scholar of considerable standing, uh, research fellow at the, the Blavnik School of, of Government at Oxford University. So it's been my honour and delight to, to observe your, 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 your rise. Um, so actually, it's, it's Nemat's ability to integrate academic and practice-based concerns that makes this book so, so valuable. And he integrates both theoretical and practical con uh, considerations so well um, in this book. Um, it focuses on reconstruction and state-building efforts in Karzai's first administration from 2001 to 2009. Um, and it take, tackles three key issues. Um, how donors supported government reforms to improve the taxation system, um, how government reorganised the state's fiscal management system, um, and thirdly, um, uh, the way in which actually efforts um, at aid reconstruction um, largely bypassed the state, um, were subordinate um, to um, security, considerations and, and the war on terror, um, and also the way in which um, policy choices of both donors and government were based on extremely short-term imperatives and forgot the long-term um, considerations of development. And in a sense, Afghanistan's living with that problem today as a consequence, despite the billions of dollars that have been spent on aid, most of that was diverted towards security, um, considerations and forgot the importance of actually providing um, jobs. <laughs> so because of Namatula's great success um, in being able to access um, key data, he's really developed a treasure trove of, of data here in a very, very difficult um, climate to underpin his research. He uses mixed methods very, very effectively to build his evidence-based claims. And he identifies some very important lessons for the theory and practice of post-war reconstruction. Um, it's actually also a quite beautifully written book. I mean, it's been amazing how your, your writing styles improved over those years. I mean, it really, I mean, I actually read this on my bedside table and very, very few books make it to my bedside table, I must admit. So it's quite beautifully written and crafted book. And in some, it, it fully deserves the plaudits it's received from the critics. Critics have variously described it as an exceptional account of foreign policy in Afghanistan. Um, I quote, a revelatory study full of compelling arguments. Um, I quote, rigorously analytic and meticulous in his research. I quote, fascinating, insightful and balanced. Uh, I mean, to be sure, this is a must read for academics development practitioners, and for me, most importantly, um, international donors. Um, but I want to um, end my little contribution to uh, today's event really by drawing out what I perceive to be the key lessons 
for the study and practice of post-war reconstruction that Nematula has so beautifully crafted. Um, the first lesson um, is that, of course, post-war reconstruction requires the eradication um, of the rule of the gun and the establishment of the rule of law. Uh, but post-war uh, countries need to get back to development as soon as possible. Um, development security harmonization is key with an emphasis on jobs, not guns. Um, and unfortunately, there's no news value um, in development in, in, in Western um, societies, only in body bags. So the great work that Afghans have achieved in development terms have failed to capture the international imagination. Um, so, for example, most people wouldn't know that Afghanistan has one of the most successful development programs in the world in the National Solidarity Program in terms of community-driven development. It's, it's held up as the, the exemplar now in terms of community-driven development. We've seen the creation of 28,000 community development councils across Afghanistan, um, which, which have acted as a vehicle for, for local development, improving access to water, sanitation, and improve livelihoods for the rural poor. I mean, there has been a very significant um, improvement in basic uh, material conditions of existence for, for rural Afghanis during this period, but that's attracted almost no media attention whatsoever. Um, secondly, um, and for me really in terms of Navatula's account, um, really this is the most important um, lesson. Um, Effective collaborative governance is the key to post-war reconstruction. Um, as you all know, we had a very infamous Paris Declaration, which basically insisted that, that donors should integrate their concerns with national development priorities, and indigenous governance should drive the national development plans and programs of post-war uh, countries. And unfortunately in Afghanistan, that was never really achieved. Constantly international donors interfered with the national development process and parachuted in their own conception of development on the country. Um, and in fact, to be honest, it was very, very difficult really to conceptualise a genuine Afghan path of development within that context. So, um, so there's very clear lessons there for the importance of actually implementing the, the Paris Declaration in practice so that international donors support rather than under, undermine national development planning. The third key lesson um, is the importance of, of obviously establishing um, an, inclusive, an inclusive national reconstruction development plan as a crucial mechanism for ensuring the legitimacy of the state. Unfortunately, um, the experience in Afghanistan really from the creation of the Afghan, what I call cut and paste constitution, you can actually run the Afghan constitution through, through plagiarism software and identify um, 86 different sources. It's the sort of thing I do in my uh, spare time. Um, but what this emphasizes actually is that constitution was not a genuine reflection of the general will um, of the people. And that undermined support in the legitimacy of the process really from quite um, early on. So successful post-war reconstruction requires effective bottom-up participation by civil society organisations in processes of reconstruction, rehabilitation and reconciliation. Um, also, national reconstruction efforts should not only focus 
on the reconstruction of public infrastructure and economic management, but also on developing indigenous human resources, appropriate institutions of governance and forms of public management to deliver on reconstruction development goals. Um, and this should be reflected in the private sector as well. So the very fact that um, overseas workers were used to rebuild Afghanistan was a disgrace, to be frank, you know. It, it, it lost the opportunity to build um, indigenous markets in Afghanistan. Um, it was actually crazy to think that jobs were given basically to overseas workers when there were thousands of Afghans needing um, basic uh, material conditions of existence. Um, a phenomenal oversight. And one that was actually um, guided by international donors, may I add. Um, fifthly, successful reconstruction requires engaging in progressive lesson learning from international experience. However, an understanding of local context is fundamental. Progressive lesson drawing inspires local solutions to local problems. Um, and again, um, I mean, there were some staggering examples of this, actually, when I, when I worked in Afghanistan. Um, I remember when I went to work for the, for the interim authority, and IBM uh, came in to, uh, to give a lecture, basically, on how to use the latest technology to inform information management systems. And, um, and this guy gave a wonderful presentation, although the problem was the generator kept um, closing down every 15 minutes, so we would have to, you know... Uh, restart his presentation um, all the time and then he finished and uh, Raz Mohammed, who you probably know, he put his hand up and he said, uh, he said sir that was a, a wonderful, wonderful presentation uh, but unfortunately we only have one computer in this ministry yeah? which uh, was, a, was, a, was an obvious example of, of uh, the disconnect between uh, the international contribution at that stage and the actual needs of Afghanistan. I remember, he was a very funny man actually, I remember, um, I asked him, he, he'd worked basically in the same building for 20 years, you know, under the Soviets and then uh, under the Mahajadeen and, and, and then uh, the Taliban and then, and then the, uh, uh, in the interim authority. And I said to him, what, what's, it, what's it been like working for 20 years in the same building? And he said, uh, uh, um, I grow my beard. I shave off my beard, I grow my beard, I shave off my beard. Nothing ever changes. <laughs> well, hopefully things have improved since then. But, uh, uh, but that actually gave you a quite interesting um, um, commentary on, the, on, on that period of, of, of instability. So I suppose, look, the key, the key argument that I'm trying to make here, and the final lesson, is that post-war reconstruction is essentially a development challenge. Reconstruction activities should start as soon as possible in order to offset the relief mentality that often underpins and shapes the activities of state institutions and actors at the central, regional and local levels. And in, and in much of Afghanistan, we've never seen that shift from a relief mentality to a development mentality that provides hope for the future of Afghanistan. So look, Nematula uh, provides very significant evidence to validate those, those lessons. Um, of course, further research is required in a broader range of post-conflict states in order to give them greater prescriptive weight. So for example, if we looked at uh, post-war Burma, interestingly enough there, secur um, security is the, is the real pressing need rather than, than, than development, although there still seems to be a need for harmonisation between the two. 
Um, and so given the stark absence of research in this area, this is an extremely valuable contribution to the establishment of a more reflexive research agenda on post-war reconstruction. And I would like to, to, to personally thank Namatula for, for contributing such a great book, and you should be extremely proud of your achievements. Um, so I'd now like to hand over to, to Nanad. Mark, thank you so much for such a wonderful discussion and also for kind introduction, uh, Matt, and also I thank my colleagues at Development Policy Center for putting this program together. Uh, it was a honor for me to have Mark and Peter Lamour and uh, Professor Amin Seikal uh, in my panel advising me through the uh, years of uh, this journey and I thank them all. So I focus on two questions. Uh, first, what's the book about? Mark already uh, mentioned in a comprehensive manner. We, uh, and the second one, what are the main findings that I focus? Fragile states or state fragility directly affects the life of more than a billion people in our world. So these states have weak institutions, as Mark uh, mentioned about, weak capacity, and they are vulnerable to the risk of conflict, as we saw in Afghanistan, and are failing or at the risk of failing to carry out the basic functions of the state. In addition, these states are perceived to be the actual or potential ground for uh, mass migration or um, offer safe haven for terrorist groups, drugs, human trafficking. Another challenge with these states, or as is the case in Afghanistan, that they often lack or fail to mobilize adequate financial resources to deliver public goods such as security, social services. Why the case or the study Afghanistan is important? Uh, first, extensive attempts at a state building after 2001 and the flow of substantial aid to Afghanistan makes an in-depth study of state building and aid in Afghanistan important for understanding the impacts of foreign aid, uh, and situations of fragility. After the Taliban regime was ousted from power in late 2001, um, a new political order was established based on the principles of democracy and Afghanistan national values. Substantial aid flew to Afghanistan, both military and development aid. However, the war on terror uh, dominated the U.S. and its allies' engagement in Afghanistan. Uh, between 2002 and 2009, Afghanistan received about 56 billion in aid, out of which 51% uh, was allocated to security sector, and 82% uh, of that aid bypassed 
the state and national mechanisms. I will get back to that one. I got it. So, uh, although this, uh, this was addressed, what's the book about, I just briefly uh, pinpoint some of the questions that this book addresses. The book examines the effects of uh, aid uh, on a state building looking, by looking at the case of Afghanistan after 2001. Um, it has an introduction, six chapters, and a conclusion. Uh, divided into three parts, conceptual framework, um, the history of revenue and the state building in Afghanistan, and uh, post-2001 state building in Afghanistan. Chapter 1 built on the rental estate theory that considers whether aid renter impacts are similar to those of uh, oil revenue by com comparing three mechanisms, taxation, government spending or budget, and uh, the formation of independent social groups. Chapter 2 provides the background for the study of post-9-11 in Afghanistan. It examines the relationship between state building and revenue in Afghanistan during three distinctive periods in which subsidies, tribute, and foreign aid uh, had played a marked role in the process of state building. Chapter 3 assesses how the new political order and aid dependency shaped the characteristics of the state post-2001 Afghanistan. Chapter 4 um, assesses how government, with aid and technical assistance from donors, reformed the taxation system. Chapter 5 examines the government budgetary process and budget transparency. Finally, Chapter 6 addresses the question of how aid dependency or the types of aid dependency which Afghanistan endured, and especially uh, uh, off-budget spending, uh, impacted the state and society interaction in Afghanistan. Three key findings have emerged from this study. I asked Professor Evan. Uh, uh, mentioned about those. Uh, first, external sources of revenue in the form of tribute, subsidies, and Here we can see um, yeah, external revenue in the forms of like tribute subsidies and foreign aid uh, has been a major source of state income uh, since mid-18th century in Afghanistan. What was the implication of this fiscal base of the state? It uh, impacted or shaped both uh, the institutions and practices of the state. Since uh, uh, 1747, except for a brief period in 1920, uh, 
the government was not able to fully fund its um, budget. And here we can see uh, some of the examples. A percentage of Afghan state income from external revenue as share of total annual state revenue selected years. Under the Durrani Empire, above 75% of the government budget or state income was coming from territories outside uh, the, uh, Afghan, today's Afghanistan. And then in 1860, uh, uh, 1863, it was 18%, but subsidies from British Empire. And then between 1889 and 1891, uh, it went above 25%. And in 1919, so uh, actually it was the time that the government was able to finance itself. And then again, since mid 18th century, we can see the, the rise of uh, um, a base rental estate in Afghanistan because about 40% of the budget was financed by foreign aid. However, this section also indicates we should note that the absence of external revenue in the case of Afghanistan and many other cases is and reliance on tax revenue is not a guarantee for accountability and effective state building. The second finding is about uh, post-2001 state building. It indicates had dependency. And this, the flow of aid, reinforced the building of uh, a fragmented aid-based uh, rentier estate between 2002 and 2009, aid comprised on annually on average 71% of uh, um, uh, GDP and financed more than 90% of the government expenditure through often on budget. However, it had mixed at sometimes paradoxical impacts on estate building. On the one hand, aid contributed to economic growth, uh, expansion of public services such as education and health, uh, and also road building. But uh, on the other hand, heavy aid dependency or the types of aid dependency which Afghanistan endured, especially over reliance of donors on off-budget spending, uh, had negative consequences for development. Uh, and uh, state building or accountability in the state building. Therefore, it helped to build and undermine the state in Afghanistan. And I discussed some of the effects under four processes. Upward accountability to donors, um, creation of a parallel public sector, uh, paradoxical tax outcomes and fiscal divergence between uh, the state and society in Afghanistan. Coming to the first one, upward accountability to donors, as the government needed to increasingly advocate to ensure the flow of aid, uh, and also to comply with aid conditionality, this situation made the government increasingly accountable to donors. While the government accountability or <coughs> upward accountability seemed uh, 
somehow helpful in the absence of a strong demand uh, by, by citizens. In the long run, it undermined uh, uh, the government accountability to citizens. In particular, the government preoccupation with donors and aid management led to the neglect of pressing domestic challenges in Afghanistan. And finally, the situation inevitably weakened the legitimacy of the government in the eyes of ordinary Afghans. The second one is creation of a parallel public sector. So we can see it here in this graph, the interactions and the, the dynamic of off and on budget I will discuss about. Uh, as 82% of aid uh, bypassed the state and national systems, it created parallel mechanisms and systems in Afghanistan. Um, there were two mechanisms available for uh, aid delivery. One was off-budget, uh, in which donors would, di would directly spend aid by through uh, implementing agencies, private companies, and NGOs. And the second mechanism was off on budget, uh, channeling the, the aid through the government budget and jointly uh, managed trust funds in Afghanistan. This uh, situation, I mean this, uh, this fiscal situation led to the emergence of a parallel public sector, which was fiscally much bigger than the permanent public sector. So if we can see in this uh, uh, slide, 82%, uh, a large portion of it bypassed the state. While this, this process, I mean, uh, off-budget spending improved the implementation of projects, it diverted much of political and financial attention from reforming and building the state permanent institutions. In addition, this type of aid increased the cost of reconstruction because of multiple transactions or in processes and increased the fragmentation of aid, in some cases fueled corruption. But it was not only the donor that bypassed the state or neglected the government, also the government leadership relied on informal networks. So here we can see like both the local and act, uh, external actors neglected uh, the permanent state institutions. The third one is paradox, paradoxical tax outcomes. In Afghanistan, it had both positive and negative uh, impacts on building the taxation system, especially recentralization of uh, revenue system, which was which fragmented during the civil war in Afghanistan. Local actors or commanders had control over um, provincial revenue departments. And adaptation of new policies and laws, upgrading of the infrastructure helped to increase revenue collection, especially Afghanistan started from a very low basis. Domestic revenue increased from 2% in 2002 to 10% in 2009. However, the existing of uh, different rules for local 
and aid in military-related activities undermined the building of taxation system. And it prevented the emergence of a harmonized tax system in Afghanistan. In addition, this, like, per, I would call it a partial reform of taxation system, failed to prevent um, tax extortion, corruption, and evasion, insecurity, and an active insurgency, and exacerbated this situation, which also led to the emergence of a parallel taxation system or shadow taxation system. The Taliban established their own taxation system. Uh, imposing taxes on, on people in areas under their control. While they were not able to deliver services, but they were able to cut off some of the services like electricity. The fourth finding is related to uh, state-society relations. The types of aid dependency which Afghanistan uh, endured uh, led to, the to a physical divergence between the state and society because both the government and societal actors like NGOs, civil society organizations were preoccupied with donors to advocate for funding and report on their expenditure. Uh, this widened the gap between state and society. I call it like fiscal gap. Also, this situation unintentionally reinforced societal fragmentation in Afghanistan and widened the gap between the state and society, as men I mentioned before. However, some of these um, problems were predicted, but as far as institution building is concerned, some of, the, some of the risk could have been mitigated by implying more appropriate mode or um, aid policies, such, in, such as using uh, on budget or using the trust funds uh, or, or relying on local institutions. The last part is, the third finding is related to theory of aid in the state building or as uh, Mark mentioned, post-conflict reconstruction. First, in terms of theory, uh, as I mentioned that I build up on, on the theory of rental estates, uh, according to this theory, rental estates use fiscal measures such as um, lowering tax rates, not taxing the population at all, uh, increasing government spending, especially on patronage to buy off adversaries, and preventing the formation of independent social groups. These mechanisms relieve social pressure for greater accountability, and the impacts are severe when institutions are weak. I argue in this work that Given the conditionality and unreliability of foreign aid, as well as the recipient's lack of control, uh, its effects differ from those of um, uh, classic rentier estates. It may have it may may have mixed impacts on building the taxation system or taxation, may help the formation of 
independent groups as some one of the policy of donors or aid is to um, to enable civil society organizations but the problem with them are that those are physical will be physically less sustainable and uh, also suffer from upward accountability to donors as i mentioned in the case of the afghan government and the last uh, or the third one uh, the, 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 in terms of budget spending, like the conditionality limits the recipient government to spend aid on patronage, but also the challenge with this system is that undermines democratic decision-making. When a donor is coming and saying, okay, I want this project to be implemented, not that one. So it's against the, the principle of democratic state building. But also the problem is when donors are bypassing uh, the, the recipient governments, it may lead to fiscal fragmentation, as was the case of Afghanistan, and may reinforce societal fragmentation. To sum up, uh, it seems to be less desirable ta than tax revenue, but when a state cannot generate adequate uh, revenue to, uh, to fa finance public goods, in that case, aid may be necessary until domestic institutions and economy uh, may thrive, as, as was the case in South Korea and Taiwan. But also we should note that the absence of uh, external revenue or unearned income such as aid is, or, or reliance on taxation is not a guarantee for accountability and effective state building. Therefore, uh, I can argue, I argue that it can reinforce or hinder state building, which may depend on, on the alignment of donors in the recipient interest, the recipient's types of estate, and whether the interaction between aid and local institutions build or undermine the state capacity. Uh, I stop here. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.